Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your wonderful grace, uh, the blessing that it is to be counted among your children, children of promise. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word, that you would do it only you can in sending your spirit to open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds. May we receive your word for what it is, the word of God and not the word of men. Lord, I pray that you would sustain my voice this morning. Uh, may your word be proclaimed clearly and boldly and may you be glorified in us, and may we be edified and shaped further into the likeness of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> so we pick up again this morning with our series in Galatians, and we are now coming to the end of Paul's arguments against the Judaizers. Now, to recap our situation in Galatia, there were a group of teachers that had been advocating a return to Jewish rituals and customs, a return to Judaism. And so we call them Judaizers. Now, essentially, what they were arguing is that the Gentiles must first become Jewish before they can join the church and thereby be saved through Christ. Paul has identified this teaching of the Judaizers as a reliance upon works of the law. He sees it as an effort to earn a right standing before God by our efforts, and thereby says this is a different gospel, one that is no true gospel at all. And so in our text this morning, we now come to the end of the arguments that Paul has been making against the Judaizers, and he makes use of one more story from the Old Testament. So let's read together from verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. 
But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And so evidently, uh, the Galatians, uh, following the Judaizers, are those who desire to be under law, in Paul's view. And so he asks the question, uh, you who are desiring to be under law, to follow law-keeping, to have law-keeping be your path to justification, you who would claim to hold the law in such high regard, do you listen to the law? Have you read what it says? Have you read what you claim to cherish? And it's interesting then that after speaking of the law, Paul then quotes from Genesis. Genesis typically is not what we think of when we think of the law, uh, right? Typically that would be referring for most people uh, to uh, perhaps Exodus, Leviticus, the sections where God is laying out his instructions. Um, And so what's interesting here is that in Paul's usage, law is actually quite expansive. And we actually see the same thing from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And so we ought not to simply think of the law as that narrow section where God is giving commandments, uh, but rather, as we see here, uh, Paul even refers to Genesis as law. As Dr. Joe Boot puts it, for Christ and the apostles, every word which came from God's mouth is a binding word and is therefore a law word. In fact, Jesus in John 15, 25 quotes from the Psalms and then says this, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And he quotes from the Psalms. So we see a very expansive use of the word law uh, by Christ and the apostles. Uh, So two points to make from this. First is we can't shrink down God's law Uh, particularly as a means of getting away from it. Uh, And secondly, you must certainly not believe that God's law is in any way in opposition to his redemptive purposes. God's law is not in opposition to the promise. It is not in opposition to the gospel. Uh, In fact, as we've seen, Paul says that the law was serving the promise. And so the only time we have anything negative spoken about the law of God is when the law is being used for something it's not meant for, right? The only time we have negative words about it is when people are using it as a means of justification, right? As far as that goes, it is weak and worthless. Uh, It is filthy rags to try to establish your own righteousness. Uh, But the law itself is not actually in opposition to the promises of God. As Paul said, Galatians 3.21, is the law then contrary to the promise? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So we see there the law was serving the promise, came alongside the promise to support it. It was not a rival to it. And as we see from this text as well, Paul argues that the law, quoting from Genesis, is actually on his side. That is, if they read the story of Abraham properly, uh, if they used the law rightly, they would side with him. Uh, They would not take the position they have taken. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, 
while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So remember back to the story of Abraham. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God had given Abraham a promise when he was 75 years old that he would become the father of many nations. As he said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What amazing promises. But then time passed and Abraham, who was already an old man, was not getting any younger and he still had no children. The Lord then appeared to him again and Abraham asked about this, saying, Lord, I still have no children. Behold, Eleazar of Damascus, one of my servants, he's going to be my heir. How am I going to receive all these promises since I still have no children? And God said to him, no, this man will not be your heir. You will have your own son from your own body. God then said, go look up at the stars of the sky. Count them if you are able. So shall your offspring be. You guys ever tried to count the stars? I usually lose track around like 20 or so. Um, God says, try to count the stars. That is the number of your offspring. He says to an old man with no children. Amazing. Uh, so, and it is in this section in Genesis 15 where we get the often quoted verse, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so God then made a covenant with Abraham that day in order to confirm the promises he had made. But more time went on, and still there was no child. And so Sarah, Abraham's wife, comes up with a plan. She says, here, take my servant Hagar. This will be the way that we can have children. And that was a fairly common practice at the time. Uh, this will be the way we can have children. So Abraham follows Sarah's plan. And Hagar conceived and bore a son named Ishmael. But the Lord later said to Abraham that it was actually going to be Sarah, his wife, who would bear the promised son, and so she did. A miracle child was born to a woman who was 90 years old and a man who was 100. And while it is true that lifespans were longer back then, it's quite clear from the story that they were both well past normal childbearing years. And so Paul references this story and says that the one son, the son of the slave woman, was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. And so Ishmael was born according to the flesh. He was only a natural descendant of Abraham. And we see Ishmael was born because Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands. Although this doesn't seem to be Paul's application here, I think this story does give a fitting illustration of those who would seek to establish their own righteousness. Right? Works righteousness, as with Abraham and Sarah in this story, involves us trying to take matters into our own hands. I think there's a bit of a natural tendency within us to go this direction. We naturally think, you know, there must be something I need to do, right? Some work 
I can perform, some penance to complete, some ritual to participate in. And so rather than trusting in God, trusting in his purposes and promises, our natural tendency is to look to ourselves, to think, what can I do to earn this? But as we'll see, all efforts that are made according to the flesh will prove themselves fruitless. Works righteousness will never accomplish what we want it to accomplish. We will never be able to establish a right standing before God through our works by the flesh. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So Paul uses the story of Ishmael and Isaac, the sons of Abraham, and he says this story can be read allegorically. This story, that means, can be read with the characters in the story representing something that is relevant to us. And so Hagar, the slave woman, is a type of, is a representative of Mount Sinai, uh, bearing children for slavery. Now, Mount Sinai, you may remember, is the mountain on which God gave Moses the law, right? That was Mount Sinai. And then he says, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now that is interesting. Paul says, Hagar, the slave woman, represents Mount Sinai, represents the Mosaic law, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. So in other words, Mount Hagar, Mount Hagar, Mount Sinai, that is Hagar. Uh, She is the Jews, right? The the Jews that have this natural connection to Abraham, the connection according to the flesh. Um, She is bearing children for slavery. That is uh, who she represents. And what's so fascinating about this, and, and what a brilliant move this is by Paul, is that this is likely the exact opposite of how the Jews would have used this story. Now, there's a number of commentators who speculate that this was actually one of the arguments that the Judaizers were using for their side, right? To point out, we are the descendants, not of Ishmael, but of Isaac, right? We have this line, this covenantal connection to Abraham. And certainly, historically speaking, the Jews were the direct descendants, not of Ishmael, but of Isaac. Isaac being the father of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. The Jews were the descendants of Isaac. And in contrast, Ishmael's descendants would have been seen as Gentiles. And so Paul then flips this on its head by asserting that Hagar, the slave woman, she is actually the one who corresponds to present Jerusalem. And she is in slavery with her children. And so Paul points out that if the Judaizers were using this story for their side, they were missing the point of the story. What they should have concluded from this story 
is that simply being descended from Abraham is not enough. Ishmael and Isaac were both the physical seed of Abraham. They both had Abraham as their father. But having a connection to Abraham through the flesh is not what counts. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So here's another Old Testament quotation Paul is drawing from Isaiah 54. And it, in its original context was addressing the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. So you may know the story, Israel and Judah had sinned, and as a result, God took the people of Judah into exile, into Babylon. Uh, and so this prophecy is stating that the time after the exile, right, as the Jews are getting to return to Jerusalem, saying that the time after the exile will be more prosperous than the time before the exile. So the two women rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. The barren one is post-exile Jerusalem. Uh, the one who has a husband is pre-exile Jerusalem. And it's saying that the time after the exile will be more prosperous than the time prior to it. And so Paul then takes that passage and applies it to the church. Now one helpful thing to understand is uh, one of the ways that the Old Testament prophets will sometimes speak and that is, they will speak of new covenant realities using old covenant language and images. So they'll speak of new covenant realities using old covenant language and images. So for example, in Isaiah 56, God prophesies a future time when eunuchs will be welcomed into his sanctuary and brought to his holy mountain. And this, of course, finds fulfillment in the church now, as there are no external laws that apply to uh, those who are clean and unclean, right? So truly, eunuchs can now come into the sanctuary. They don't have to worry about being ceremonially clean, but they can come and enter into the presence of God and worship with God's people. So that's an old, uh, that's a new covenant reality uh, prophesied in old covenant language and images. Uh, and so that's similar to what we have here. So the prosperity promised for desolate Jerusalem, the prosperity promised for desolate Jerusalem is fulfilled in the new covenant, uh, in the church, made up of the remnant of believing Jews combined with the Gentiles. And, and Paul is saying, this new covenant, this barren, thought to be barren, desolate Jerusalem will be a greater and more prosperous Jerusalem than the old Jerusalem had been. And this has certainly proven true. Just compare the time before and after the coming of the Messiah. What kind of fruit has been born in the world for God? Again, as Dr. Joe Boot points out, Israel was largely ineffective as a missionary people. In Exodus 19, we saw part of their mission was for them to be a kingdom of priests, right? Priests who would mediate the blessings of God to the world. One of the reasons they were given their law 
was that it would function as an apologetic for the goodness and glory of God in the world. Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, Israel was to keep the law, for it says, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, of the nations, who, when they hear all these statutes, these laws and commands, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So as a kingdom of priests with a holy and righteous law, they were meant to be a blessing to the world, right? to mediate God's blessings to the world as priests. But as we see, if we read the Old Testament, they were largely ineffective in this task. That is, right up until the time that the seed of the woman was born in Bethlehem, grew and crushed the head of the serpent in his death and resurrection, ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out his spirit on the church. And what happened then? The gospel exploded across the known world. The stone from Nebuchadnezzar's vision cut with no human hand struck the idol representing the kingdoms of the world and shattered it, turned it to dust, and that stone has been growing into a mountain that will fill the whole world. Daniel chapter 2. That is an image of the growth of the kingdom of God. The gospel conquered the pagan world. Within 400 years, Christianity was the official religion of Rome. It conquered paganism. Hear the words of Athanasius of Alexandria from the 4th century. He says this, When did people begin to abandon the worship of idols? Unless it were since the very word of God came among men. When have oracles ceased and become void of meaning among the Greeks and everywhere, except since the Savior has revealed himself on earth? When did those whom the poets call gods and heroes begin to be adjudged as mere mortals, except when the Lord took the spoils of death and preserved incorruptible the body he had taken, raising it up from the dead? Or when did the deceitfulness and madness of demons fall under contempt, save when the word, the power of God, the master of all these as well, condescended on account of the weakness of mankind and appeared on earth. When did the practice and theory of magic begin to be spurned underfoot, if not at the manifestation of the divine word to men? In a word, when did the wisdom of the Greeks become foolish, save when the true wisdom of God revealed himself on earth? In old times, the whole world and every place in it was led astray by the worship of idols, and men thought the idols were the only gods that were. But now, all over the world, men are forsaking the fear of idols and taking refuge with Christ, and by worshiping him as God, they come to know through him the Father also, whom they formerly did not know. Close quote. There has been and continues to be a great harvest. The gospel has been bearing fruit among the formerly desolate Gentiles. And so we see the children of the desolate one are more than those of her who had a husband. 
The fruitfulness and the blessings of the new covenant are far surpassing that of the old covenant. Continuing on, verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So notice here he says that it is Christians, those of faith, who are the children of promise. And I think here we come into our final contrast that Paul makes in the book of Galatians. So just see the argument he's been building, uh, all these contrasts that he has drawn. To follow the teaching of the Judaizers is to choose a false gospel over the true gospel. It is to seek justification by works of the law instead of by faith in Christ. It is to choose the flesh instead of the spirit, law instead of promise, works instead of grace, slavery instead of sonship. It is to be born of the slave woman instead of to the free woman, to be born of the flesh instead of the promise. It is to belong to Mount Sinai rather than to Mount Zion, and to belong to the earthly Jerusalem rather than the heavenly. You, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. The Judaizers' only true connection to Abraham was through the flesh, either by being his physical descendants uh, or the connection they shared by having been uh, circumcised in the flesh. And as we see, that kind of connection to Abraham is exactly what Ishmael had, right? He too was descended from Abraham according to the flesh. He also shared in circumcision, uh, also at a later age than his uh, younger brother, unfortunately for him. Um, and so that is not enough to claim a physical connection to Abraham. Uh, he says instead, those of faith, as we've seen through Galatians, it is those of faith, those who belong to Christ, who are the true heirs of Abraham. And he says here again, you, brothers, you with faith in Christ, you, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So here we get another reference to a story from Abraham, uh, another incident in the story of Abraham, Genesis 21 tells this story. So remember, Abraham had his two sons, uh, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, and Isaac, the son of promise. Now at the time that baby Isaac was weaned, now eating solid food, uh, so probably just around a year old or so, Abraham throws a great feast to celebrate his son Isaac's weaning. And so during this feast, this celebration of Isaac, Sarah sees Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, laughing, mocking at her son Isaac. And so as Paul interprets it, the uh, son of the slave woman was persecuting the son of the free woman. So Paul then draws another parallel from, the, from Abraham's story and says, you brothers, you Galatian Christians who are sons and heirs through faith in Christ, you brothers are like Isaac. You are the children of promise. 
And just as Ishmael, the son of the flesh, persecuted the son born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So the Judaizers specifically, and perhaps the other Jews who are persecuting Christians, they are like Ishmael mocking baby Isaac. That's the connection Paul brings here. Their only claim to to Abraham is through the flesh. By refusing to come to Christ through faith alone, they are not children of promise. And so just as the child born according to the flesh persecuted uh, the child of promise, so also it is now. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, cast out the slave woman and her son. Now, that had been Sarah's request to Abraham after she had seen Ishmael mocking Isaac. Now, Abraham loved his son Ishmael and was reluctant to send him away. Um, But God assured Abraham that Ishmael would be taken care of uh, and that he too would be made into many nations. And so then Abraham listened to God and listened to his wife Sarah and sent sent away Hagar and Ishmael. And so Paul then picks up this example as well and applies it typologically to the church. So just as Abraham sent out the slave woman and her son, so now the church is to cast out these false teachers. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. There is only one path to the inheritance. The Judaizers have been proclaiming a different gospel, one that is no gospel at all. They, through their false teaching, are proclaiming a different path to receiving the inheritance. And so it is not enough for the Galatians to simply reject the teaching of the Judaizers, but then allow them to remain as if there could be two paths to inheritance. Rather, they are called to cast them out. If these Judaizers will not repent and embrace the true gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, then they are to be put out from the church through church discipline. What I want you to notice from the text is that church discipline is the responsibility of the entire congregation. Remember, Galatians, uh, this letter that we call Galatians, was written to the churches in Galatia. This was a letter that was meant to be read aloud in each church in the city. And so Paul gives instructions to all of the churches to cast out these false teachers from their midst. They were to perform church discipline, and that is the responsibility of the congregation, uh, of the churches themselves. Now, what is church discipline? Well, to put it simply, church discipline is the process we are called to follow when a professing Christian is found to be living in sin. Matthew 18, uh, Jesus outlines the steps, and you can turn with me there. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 15. 
Matthew chapter 18, starting from verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So notice from this text, all Christians are required to be accountable to one another. The Christian life is not meant to be a solo affair. There are to be no Lone Ranger Christians. Now, when we become Christians, we we are to be baptized upon profession of faith. And 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says that we are baptized into the body of Christ. So baptism joins you to the body of Christ. You then become a member a part of that universal body uh, through your baptism uh, into a local church, which is an expression, a necessary expression of the universal body of Christ. So baptism signifies your entrance into the body of Christ, and it is a picture of your conversion. Remember Romans 6, we are buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that we might be raised to walk in newness of life. That is a picture of your conversion. You are declaring to all that you are now identified with Christ, having been baptized into his body. The church has another ordinance in which we collectively affirm the members of Christ's body, that being the Lord's Supper. We commune with Christ spiritually by partaking of his body and blood. And partaking of the supper is an affirmation from the church. The entire church collectively is saying, yes, you are, to the best of our knowledge, a true participant in the body and blood of Christ. We affirm your profession of faith, we affirm your baptism, and and we affirm your commitment to walk as a Christian man, man or woman, all the days of your life. Now, what happens when somebody begins doing or saying something that would contradict their profession of faith. What happens if someone begins to live in sin? Someone begins to neglect what they are called to do or be as a Christian man or woman. Well, they are now, through their sin, through their disobedience, contradicting what they had previously declared in their baptism. They claimed that Christ was Lord, but they are not now living that way. So the question, is the church to continue affirming them as a true participant in the body and blood of Christ? No. And this is where church discipline comes in. As we talked about last week, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. If it strikes us as a harsh or unloving thing to seek to exercise church discipline, I would simply challenge you to remember who spoke these words. 
Brothers and sisters, we have been instructed in this by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Holy Spirit inspired his holy apostles to give these instructions to the church. So do not presume to be more loving than Jesus. Do not set yourself up as if you are more loving than God. So then, what is the process given to us by our Lord for church discipline? Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So we see the first step here is a private confrontation. Say, brother, you have sinned uh, and you must repent. And then you show him his sin. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Praise the Lord. Right? That is your hope. That is your goal, to regain your brother, to see him restored uh, in repentance. And confrontation of this kind ought to be normal among believers. It is actually to be one of the blessings of church life that we would have brothers and sisters in the faith who care enough for our souls that they would be willing to risk harming our friendship. As Paul with the Galatians, he had to risk being considered their enemy for the sake of telling them the truth. And that is, of course, always a risk when we confront someone for their sin. But we must love one another enough to be willing to take that kind of a risk. Verse 16, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, so if you have confronted your brother in sin and he has refused to repent, says, no, I, I am not changing anything, I am not repenting of this sin, uh, then the next step you are to take is to get other people involved, uh, two or three others, at this point, most likely church leadership. Now their job is to establish the truthfulness of the claim. Uh, we see Jesus affirms God's law, uh, the, the standards for establishing a charge. Uh, we do not want any false accusations uh, to stand. Uh, so the two or three witnesses come and confirm uh, the truthfulness of the charge. And then as well, if it is true, they would also call this person to repent. Jesus goes on, if he refuses to listen to them, that is the two or three witnesses, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so we see the final stage of church discipline involves the entire church. The church is told of the issue. Uh, likely it would be if we had to do this at a private members meeting. Uh, the church would be told of the issue and would then commit this brother to prayer and would all seek to call him to repentance uh, when the opportunity was there. And so what I hope we see is that church discipline, uh, this whole process of accountability, is the responsibility of the entire church. Right? Church discipline is not just the job of the elders. It is the body, the congregation that is to do this. And so then, if after a time, this brother still does not repent, the church is to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, they are to treat him as an unbeliever. 
The church could no longer affirm him as a brother because through his unrepentant sin, through his ongoing disobedience and refusal to repent, he has been functionally denying and contradicting his profession of faith. He had once claimed Christ is Lord. He had once committed to living for Christ, but now through his sin is contradicting that profession of faith. He is lying about what was said in his baptism. And so at that point, he is to be excommunicated, uh, that is removed uh, from the church. And the place where that is seen most clearly is that he is no longer to be admitted to the Lord's table. He may not partake in communion. The church can no longer grant him that affirmation For he has been telling everyone through his unrepentant sin that he is not a true participant in the body and blood of Christ. So I hope we see the connection here between the Lord's Supper, accountability, and church discipline. The Lord's Supper is an affirmation given from the church to each believer. One of the things I love about this is that we see every week as you are partaking of the Lord's Supper, it is an affirmation from all of your brothers and sisters. The church collectively saying, yes, you are a true participant in the body and blood of Christ. But the fact is, the Lord's Supper can only function in that way if it is being properly linked to the accountability that comes through church discipline. And here's part of why church membership is so important. Scripture involves some kind of membership. As we've seen, all Christians are required to be accountable to one another. Accountable to a particular local church where they will experience the blessings of accountability. Where they will experience the blessings of having brothers and sisters who are committed to walking the Christian life together with them. And as we've seen, accountability is the job of the entire church. We are to hold one another accountable when necessary to confront one another in sin and when necessary to excommunicate the unrepentant from our ranks, hoping and praying that they would repent and come back and be restored to Christ. And so we see Paul instructing the Galatian church, cast out the slave woman and her son, For the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. We see here that the gospel was at stake. The unity of the church was at stake. And so these stakes were far too high for this to be something that the church would simply overlook. The Judaizers were preaching a different gospel, one that was no gospel at all. Those who trust in a false gospel will not be saved. And so however harsh it may sound to us for Paul to call for discipline, we need to see that love demands it. Here's the reality. Harshness of some kind will be inescapable when you're in a situation like this. 
Paul had the option to either be harsh toward the sin and false teaching or to be harsh toward those who were living in it and deceived by it. Now, what do I mean? Well, if Paul knows that those who trust in a false gospel are on the road to hell, is it truly loving for him if he simply downplayed the severity of the false teaching? No. You can think of a doctor who discovers that you have a fatal but possibly treatable form of cancer. Would it be loving of him if he chose not to tell you about it? Would that be the less harsh thing for him to do? No. If he sweeps that under the rug, he has been very unloving. He has been harsh with you in that he cared so little for you that he was unwilling to have a difficult conversation. That is not love. So given how serious this false teaching is, the call for church discipline is therefore the most loving thing that could be done. Those who have been deceived, been taken in by this false gospel, must be made aware of how deadly and pernicious it truly is. So out of love for God, love for his truth, and love for the souls of people, the church must contend for truth. We must be willing to have the hard conversations at the right time. Now, we do need to be careful with this. Uh, not every issue on which we disagree with someone is a core issue, right? There are such a thing as secondary matters, uh, things that are not an issue of salvation, about which we must be charitable with one another. But note here, when the gospel is at stake, as it was in Galatia, we must have all the zeal, all the fire, and all the courage of the Apostle Paul. Churches that refuse to discipline heretics and false teachers in their ranks are on an inevitable slide into apostasy. And honestly, this is one of the major concerns that I have as I look toward the future. Now, my hope is that Grace Covenant Church would flourish, that it would be a faithful and bold witness long after I'm gone, we're gone. And so to the young people, to the young people, kids, I say this, contend for the gospel. Lord willing, this church will continue far past the lifetimes of the founding members. And so, kids, it will be in your hands to continue to contend for the gospel. Do not compromise on the biblical qualifications for leadership within the church. Do not let church leadership become a popularity contest. And secondly, be utterly unyielding against any compromises of the gospel. Follow Paul's example. Be wise and discerning. And be willing to be considered an enemy for the sake of truth. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The true gospel is the gospel of freedom. Do not yield to slavery, whether it be the slavery of works righteousness, the slavery of false religion, or the slavery of following trends and trying to keep up with the sensibilities of modern culture. There is one gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who did for us what we could not do for ourselves, living the life we were required to live and dying the death that we deserve to die. We all need to know this gospel. Christ died in our place, taking the punishment for sins, uh, for the sins of his people, and he rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, from where he will reign until all his enemies are made his footstool. Our great risen and reigning king offers freedom, offers forgiveness to the rebels enslaved to their sin. To those enslaved to the weak and worthless elementary principles. Freedom to those enslaved by the endless cycles of striving to earn that which cannot be earned. To them, the gospel of freedom sets them free. To those enslaved in their sin, kept down by the world, their own sinful flesh, and the influence of the devil, Christ frees them transfers them into his glorious kingdom, where they now live as free men, set free to serve their true master. This glorious good news is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ, throw yourself upon the mercy of God, and you will find perfect forgiveness and new life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your glorious gospel. Lord, we pray that your spirit would preserve your church in every place. Lord, protect your church from false teaching. Protect it from heresy so that your gospel would be pure and true and function to continue to release those enslaved uh, to sin. Lord, may it grant true freedom. May your spirit be at work in this world. May your kingdom come in its fullness. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your name be honored as holy in every place. And we pray here that you would bless each person, that you would drive these truths deep down into our hearts, that they would bear fruit for you. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.